North and South Care. (laughs) It was blue earlier. All right, we live, we live, we live, we live. Oh, we're live. We're live. Oh, we're live. This is live. Thank you so much for letting me know. I didn't even mean to do it that time, for real, for real. You get me every time. It's always Harrison being quieter than me just blasting something. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Hey, fam. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. Welcome back. This is episode 29. It feels like uh, we're coming to the end of an era, so to speak. And I would say one of the reasons why it feels that way is because literally right now, while we're sitting at home, there are people in buildings that probably have limited amount of windows around them counting ballots that will determine who the next president of the United States is. And it's kind of crazy because for me, this is the second election I have been able to vote. And the first one I voted, which is also, I would say, uh, uh, David Cronenberg's maybe seventh film, is probably one of the fastest elections that I've at least seen. There was really no kind of waiting around or, I would say, trickiness to the proceedings. It it happened and then it was done. So, guys, I mean, I really want to know. I would ask you how you're doing, but uh, I think we're all pretty much doing the same mike how are you feeling um your haircut is nice which means all is not lost but p- please tell me what, how, how are you feeling right now yeah we've come a long day from the pandemic files when it was all we all had hats on <laughs> uh but uh i'm feeling good man I'm, I'm good to be on with y'all it's good to be back on the show it's good to I'm really just glad that like election night has happened. I feel like for so long we've been living in this I can't wait till election night world. And that was just the that was literally the posture since like November 15, 2016, or whatever the heck it was, like when it really sunk in that Trump was gonna be president. It was like can't wait till you know November 3rd, 2020. And so I, I'm feeling good, man. I'm re- I'm feeling really good about Michigan. We went blue again. I'm super, super excited about that. Um, I don't know. That may or may not be fake news. I think the president said he wanted at 2.30 a.m. So there's conflicting reports on reality there. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling real good, man. You know, a big win for Biden up here. And we just got to wait till uh, things kind of settle out in a couple more states. And, and I think we'll be smooth sailing from there. So um, feeling a lot better than I did, you know, let's say 22 or 21 hours ago when I forgot that there was a bunch of votes that still had to be counted, but I'm feeling a lot better now as those votes have been counted. Gotcha. Um, so just super quick before I have everyone else jump in guys, before I forget, thank you so much for um, following us, for liking our page, for rocking with us for 29 episodes. My touchdown, uh, I would say, what gesture has been able to be seen by Mike Miller, which is a blessing. Thank God. But we're so glad that you guys have uh, decided to check in with us, talk with us. We know a lot is going on right now, so we appreciate you taking out the time. Please don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, you can also listen to our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify. So, let us know where you're watching from and who you who you voted for. If it's third party or Trump, we don't want to hear it. Um, Logan, how are you feeling about the election so far? 
I know you've been watching the numbers all day. Kind of tell me how that experience has been. Yeah, so I have been uh, pretty tuned in. I decided to take the day off from work um, today and yesterday and for like six months um, to just get ready for election night. And so that's been pretty exciting. Um, yeah, so I got to be honest, I was pretty negative last night in the chats. Um, Nixon was trying to keep me in line because I was like, yo, it's a wrap. This is over. Like, I'm going to bed, but I couldn't go to bed because, like, y'all were up late, but it was, like, 9 p.m. still in Cali. So I was like, I guess I'm going to sit here till 4 a.m., which is what I kind of did, like, 3.30. I think I went to sleep when they were trying to bring Wisconsin back into the situation. And then I literally woke up, and Nixon had texted me at, like, 6.20 my time. And he was like, yo, you up? And I hadn't looked at anything, so I was low-key terrified. And then he told me Michigan just pulled and Wisconsin had pulled, and I was just like, screaming and like really happy um so yeah it's just been kind of a roller coaster but it's been a fun one i suppose kind of still worried because trump's a, a terrorist but um yeah other than that like just seeing how it all plays out it's been exciting definitely definitely i have to say it was really wild waking up um this morning and then seeing that michigan flipped which was wild because again, I have to agree, when I went to bed, I was feeling terrible and I could barely sleep. Garrison, did you kind of go through a similar experience or was yours wildly different from election night till I would say now? I mean, I was really, I was pretty down last night. I mean, it. I think, you know, it's been kind of talked about a little bit. I know Van Jones said something about it on CNN last night, just talking about how like, if you were looking for the country to make like a really clear statement that we reject racism and we reject xenophobia and we reject the idiocy that is a Trump presidency, you didn't really get that. And like, that's kind of the down that I went to bed on, but obviously we knew that votes would be counted over the next couple of days. So like I had the intellectual, like, I think we can still win kind of thing in my mind, but a certain amount of kind of disbelief and a little bit of sadness that we didn't just like completely route this guy. Like we didn't just completely like, you know, blow him out of the water and like, yeah. And so that part, I kind of went to bed a little sad about that. Um, but I mean, I knew that and I was also a little angry because it seems like there's some very serious voter suppression or at least disenfranchisement kind of tactics happening in Georgia. And that's my home state, Atlanta specifically. So that had me a little upset. But to wake up this morning to the good news that Biden was making a roaring comeback in places like Wisconsin and Michigan was tip top. Uh, been been very happy all day. Definitely. Um, age, and thank you for sharing. Uh, Adrian and Esther, you guys, I have to say, this is like super random, but I went to their house a few weeks ago to see it, and it's such a nice house. I can't like not keep saying that. So while you guys were in your really nice home, how was it watching the election? <laughs> it was rough, bro. I can't even well, hold you. I was 
with my parents for part of it, which is always nice because my parents are, I mean, obviously like diehard, like now I'm for Republicans. My parents are diehard Democrats. <laughs> Who did I marry? Democrats. <laughs> they are Democrats. Let me just make that clear. But my dad was like, every time a state was called for Biden, even, and it was like all the ones that we knew Biden was going to get, he'd be like, yes. Like every time, even though it's like, none of this is a surprise. <laughs> Like California, but I was trying really hard not to. I was trying really hard to just stay very level and not draw any conclusions. I was like, I just really don't know, and just try to stay in that I don't know space, which was kind of helpful to help me not freak out too much. I did get, I did not ever think it was going to be a complete like, I wasn't surprised that. I guess seeing now how close it is, I'm kind of shocked, like, oh, it's this close. Like, we're literally down to, like, a few thousand votes in some places, which is really scary. But I wasn't necessarily expecting, like, a huge, like, a, just, like, a blue sweep. I didn't really expect that. So I wasn't, like, very disappointed about that. Um, I really was upset by Trump's speech, though. And then, like, I went to bed right after his speech at 2.30. And I was, like, very, I was very annoyed at that. And even though, like, I know a lot of it is it's empty threats, yeah. but it is also like it's going to resonate so much with people who support him. And the more I've seen from him and his camp, it just it's just a reminder, like we're going to be dealing with the impact and the ripples of Trumpsters for decades. Like they are not going anywhere. And that is very frustrating to think about. Um, but overall, I'm feeling pretty positive now. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, my, my guy on CNN was holding me down, you know, just breaking down everything, uh, from, from states to cities to counties. Um, and he, I don't even know if he was like trying to be, um, encouraging for, you know, people that were left leaning, but like he was encouraging for me to keep reminding where he kept saying context matters, context matters, because he knew that there were literally millions of millions of votes that weren't being counted. And so I, I was trying to be like, like, you know, calm and, and reassured by that. I, I will say that I definitely, um, I hold some of the same, uh, I guess, sadness that, that Garrison expressed where it, it felt like, like if we, if we were to pinpoint it to like the, the George Floyd and the Breonna Taylor moment, and we saw like, you know, support with Black Lives Matter's like spike up in, in that moment. Um, and then you see how Trump has overwhelmingly um, been pulled as they disapprove of how he's handled the pandemic. Um, in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, are we experiencing some kind of, of moral ideological shift among particularly white Americans at this moment. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I do wonder where maybe there's some truth to that, that people, they were honest with these polls. Like, yeah, they did not approve of Trump's behavior or how he handled the pandemic. But I think one of the things that really scared me was none of that mattered because of what he told them they were up against. And it, it, it was frightening to see how much of a hold um, misinformation and propaganda worked for Trump's campaign. Like that, 
it it's frightening to think about because you're like from someone with a clear head, so to speak, hearing the rhetoric he's saying, like, you know it's utter nonsense, but when you're in that echo chamber, it like this you 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 get caught up in it. And and I remember, you know, when Esther and I went to the store, we were talking about how for a lot of it, oftentimes like these some of these tactics that Republicans use. They could be racist. They might not be. We don't know. But they're willing to use the dog whistling and the the political strategies that are racist because they know that their uh, voters are racist, right? And it's like, you know, once they're done with their political strategy, they've created a whole reality for so many of these people, right? I, I, I like occasionally switched over to Fox News to like see how they're presenting it. And it's like they're it's like a different world. You compare it to any other network, even things like USA Today, Good Morning, America, it doesn't matter what you went on, it everything just felt completely different. They're giving airtime for Giuliani to spread out misinformation. And it's like, my my man, like I don't I don't know how you combat against that. Cause it's like they they have created a literal false reality for like millions of people and Trump is not, we knew he wasn't going down without a fight. But like Esther said, we kind of tried to go to bed after he made that speech and it was like frightening because it just showed how, like how fragile our democracy is and how close we came to something like, like fascism. Like people just kind of write that off. But when you have a man who is seen as like a demagogue, he's, you know, um, discrediting the value of elections and, and you know, taking the Supreme Court to go in his favor. Like there, there are so many aspects that show that it is clear we don't have a functioning democracy. And when you put someone like Trump, who is chaotic in the midst of our political system, like it, it, it was kind of frightening. So it's a little bittersweet, I, I would say. It's, it's definitely been a lot overwhelming like just overwhelmed with a lot of emotions thanks adrian so simone thanks for coming welcome 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 hi everyone sorry i'm late <laughs> so Garrison did say that you just came off of a call so like give us a picture of what your day has been like has it has there been a lot of you know conversations i know you do work in law you are an attorney so as an attorney what has this day and, and even last night been for you? What's been your experience? Uh, it's been stressful, <laughs> um, but it's honestly just been a lot of conversations trying to, uh, you know, Garrison and I talked about this earlier, actually, just like trying to help people understand what we're looking at, right? Like, I think when you look at the results, you look at what's being projected, you look at the, you know, the mail-in ballot situation, what are we looking at there? A lot of friends have called asking for help and just understanding those things. Um, you know, as an attorney, I think it's been pretty quiet today, honestly, in some ways. Like Garrison was like, are you working? And yeah, I was working because everybody is exactly where I am, glued to their TV, kind of just like trying to figure out what's happening next. Um, and I think, um, you know, even in terms of all these lawsuits and things like that, I've been having conversations for weeks on end with 
um, the local organizations that I'm involved in just um, in preparation for this moment as attorneys that there was going to be litigation coming and we might need to be ready to kind of, you know, hop on board and to get things going in that way um, that we might need to mobilize as a community and just have some important conversations and debriefs to make sure that we're all checking in as black attorneys to make sure that we're okay. Um, but it's been a lot. It's been a lot going on. I wouldn't say that it's I, I, maybe in some ways it's a lot you know, in general, but I would say everybody is going through a lot right now. Like all of you are going through a lot right now. You know, we're not any more isolated in this, in this chaos of, of, of foolishness. Um, but the lawsuit front is going to be interesting. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, we're able to get a clear line of demarcation between being a democracy and actually voting, actually counting votes <laughs> and what, has tried to kind of become the narrative of, you know, casting a lot of doubt in our system. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what it's been like. <laughs> Very good. So guys, I, I would say the first thing I'm wondering, and I think some of the things, or rather one of the things I've been thinking about today is what happened in Florida. What happened with Florida and what happened with different demographics and how they voted for Trump, because I read an article saying that there have been a lot of um, misinformation. There's been a lot of ads, you know, characterizing Biden as a socialist. And it made me think about how some of the misinformation and false characterization of positions and candidates has affected this election. So, after like I would say four years of misinformation, do you how how much do you guys think this affected the election that we're going through today? How has misinformation, false information, however way however way you want to put it, how has that affected the election process we're going through right now? How has it made things different? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think we can really understate how how different things are because of misinformation, especially when they're coming from the person with the biggest, you know, as they say, the biggest megaphone in the game, the biggest pulpit, the biggest pl platform in the world is the president of the United States of America. Like, and, and he's the chief distributor of misinformation. So it's played a huge role. Um, I've been talking about this, you know, we, I did a, a Nixon, I did like a Instagram live thing this morning and I talked about it there and I've sent it to the group and I'll keep talking about it. I highly recommend that people check out this documentary on HBO called 537 Votes. It's so good. It's so, so good. It talks about the 2000 election, which is a really helpful bit of history mm -hmm. to understand what's happening here in the 2020 election. And revisiting that history is important because they based the documentary entirely on what took place there in Florida, particularly in Miami-Dade, which is in South Florida. And so the idea is just basically that Republicans learned that if we use the C word, if we use the S word, communist, socialist, if we use this word with the Cuban community, it, 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 we can get some traction here with that idea that the Democrats, progressives, liberals, whatever you want to say, are socialists, are communists. And that in many ways is just such disinformation, especially in 2020 when Joe Biden is definitely not that like that. He is not that 
there are progressive Americans who are like, I'm not even interested in Joe Biden because he isn't liberal enough. And so that kind of disinformation and misinformation is really important to understand. And it's interesting, Rick Santorum was on CNN earlier, uh, or no, we, we were watching Fox earlier, mm -hmm. Fox, Fox, Fox. And they were saying how like, oh, we need to, we really need to hold these pollsters accountable because if you're telling the American people that Trump is behind in these key states, when you know it's going to affect the way they vote, and that has an effect, and we should hold them accountable. But they're not talking about how if you tell people in South Florida that Joe Biden is a socialist, even though he's not, like that's going to affect the vote as well in a very yeah. real and tangible way. So I think misinformation and disinformation has been a really powerful tool, and of course. You know, New York Times did a great study saying that Pennsylvania had the highest rate of disinformation in the mail, on the news media and on social media. Like Pennsylvania was really targeted for disinformation yeah. campaigns. So can't put a put a number to it. I mean, even in terms I like I was watching um, this like newscast from one of my alma maters. And when they went out there to talk to people about like, why do you think it's significant that we vote in this election? They both said, both sides said, the democracy is at stake. That is not an indication that, that something is going wrong in the information that we're receiving. I don't know what is. Both sides have the exact same concern but they're concerned about the other side in like this huge way of like, it's it just, it's inconceivable that anything good could come from Democrats because they're all socialists. And like this, just these huge, these wildly un, you know, unsubstantiated claims that are becoming more and more um, the bedrock of people's vote and the, their motivation in this election. And it's clear to me that people have competing information and it is that that fact is super questionable, which is super unfortunate. And I just think that people are, I mean, I just think that we're in a bind here. <laughs> we're just in a bind in terms of our social capital and our mental state as a nation. I think we're kind of compromised. I think it's also important you talk about demographics with, with Miami-Dade and with the Hispanic community at large. Like there is also a racial divide within the Hispanic community that sometimes like doesn't get acknowledged when you talk about politics. Like there's lots of white Latinos. So if, we, if we're talking about things like identity politics and race, it is not always cut and dry just because I'm a Hispanic person that I am going to have these liberal identity politics politics because you can very easily be a Hispanic person who who benefits from white privilege. Right. And that conversation becomes especially relevant when you talk about Cubans because there's a lot of white Cubans in America. So um, that is, I think that is also at play here too. Like I think definitely the misinformation is huge. And then it is also, I think part of that conversation too is like there is a racial and economic divide within the Hispanic community that also dictates their politics. Yeah, and to, to bring up what, you know, the example that Garrison brought up in 2000, um, that voter fraud mis misinformation was pushed heavy. Like. It, uh, Michael Barbaro on his daily episode actually talked about how the voter fraud, you know, 
verbiage, like how it was used so strongly, kind of came out of that that 2000 um, election, which was simply a matter of them wanting to just recount states because it was so, recount votes, excuse me, because it was so close. And there's like, it, it's frightening to see the resemblance of how Republican voters are responding to moments like this, like that uh, Brooks Brothers riot that we know that was famous in 2000 is very similar to what was happening in, in um, I believe it was Detroit and Philly earlier today where they're, they're chanting, you know, like stop the votes, which is like, if, if you are truly cognitively aware of what you're saying, you should know that you are describing something that's just undemocratic, right? But when you watch how the narrative is being portrayed uh, on Fox News versus the rest of the nation, you have other news sites that are saying Trump wants to use the Supreme Court to stop Pennsylvania from voting because of his claim of voter fraud. And then they continue and say, however, there is no evidence and claim that uh, there's any relevance to this uh, uh, claim that he's providing. But when you go on Fox News, that that context isn't added. They just give airtime to Trump, his campaign, to Giuliani. And all that does is you know they're going to push propaganda. And it, it's, it's concerning because I'm listening to how Giuliani is like spinning the story of what's happening in Philly. And it's like, if you were living in that bubble and you weren't given the proper context of what's going on in these voter voting stations, I could see how this narrative would make sense. But people are sharing that like it, it's actually a bipartisan effort in counting these votes in Pennsylvania. But that crucial piece of information is being left out when you go to places like Fox News. They're not mentioning that. And so when they hear that oh ballots are being counted and they're not allowing the Trump campaign inside to monitor, it, it creates this this notion that something conspiratorial is happening and and it's that exact kind of concern. It's like I don't I don't even know how to combat against that because it's like you you are literally just lying. You're leaving out crucial pieces of information to create a story, <laughs> and then it erupts with people going out thinking that it's voter fraud, like we saw in 2000 and we see it again now, where they're protesting against something that isn't even real. And that I think is, it's, it's bizarre to see how history repeat itself because the Republican party knows that this tactic is so useful. And that it's, it's frightening to think the lengths that they'll go again 20 years later. Yeah, you know, that, that's so well said by all of you. And, you know, I, I think I've kind of gone back and forth because, like, I think, you know, uh, someone else said, going into the night, you know, I was really kind of hoping, like, yo, it would be great if we just, like, smack this dude up. Like, he just got trounced. Like, you know, let's go big. Let's, let's flip Texas. Let's flip Florida. Let's just, like, flip the whole map and just make it look crazy. But I actually love the fact that this dude <laughs> made a 2.30 a.m. victory speech, and then everything just started changing right after that. I love it. He's going out just as sad as he came in, bro. And I, lo I love every 
minute of it, dude. I want to. I want to see him tweet through the pain. I want to see him file as many lawsuits as humanly possible and lose every single one of them because all that dude does is lose in federal court. I I love it, bro. His supporters is pulling up to Detroit talking about some stop the count. I love it. Go out sad, bro. I love it. Go out as sad as you came in. Like, dude, I, I'm talking to Mike about uh, uh, Mike Miller about battle rap in the comments. That was a, that was an accident. But one of, one of my favorite battle rappers, his name is B Dot. He has a slogan where he says, if, th- "If these are your last days, this is your last hour." That's what he says to his opponent. This is Donald Trump's last hour, dog. It's his last days. He's going out sad, and I'm just I'm happy, bro. Georgia is with that one percent now. ATL coming through, <laughs> like it's it's really he he's going out sad, and and so I think I mean okay, so in reality, I mean it's you know in the days to come, obviously you want things to be peaceful, you don't want stuff to get crazy. But I don't know that we could expect somebody like Trump to go out peaceful. Like, no, like, I feel like the media and all these different career politicians have been waiting for years for Trump to act like some sort of normal politician just because they felt like it was inevitable. Like, he has to act presidential at a certain point. What evidence do we have that he was ever going to do that? And and, and now that he's losing it, what makes you think he's going to go out with dignity? Like, come on, like that, that's just not in him. And so um, it's unfortunate that he's riling up his supporters in the way that he is. Um, so so for, for sure here in Michigan, I'm hoping that, you know, people do stay safe and because there have been reports about some of these militias, you know, stocking up weapons and they want to target cities. And like, I'm, I'm hoping that that's more, um, you know, smoke than actual fire. But, I mean, we'll just see. But, I mean, at the end of the day, um, he's going out with as little as, as little integrity as he came into it with and just kind of reminding people on the way out who he really is. And low-key, I kind of love that. So, I mean, just keep keep the same energy on the way out, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's so important to – I mean, you're hitting on something so important, Nick. Like, at the end of the day – the only reason why there would be chaos in the streets, the only reason why there would be any type of violence that would happen is if Donald Trump incites it, period. That, that's that's the entire story. There's no scenario where Joe Biden is, even if, if, if like some injustice was happening towards Biden and his campaign, there's no scenario where he is like, egging his supporters on to go into like, you know, polling stations and precincts and demand that they, you know, do what we say do or else kind of that doesn't happen. That does not happen. And it's important to say this because people have been trying to do this false equivalency kind of thing for the last five years where, oh, Hillary and and Donald, like, I, I don't know, you know, and like, like, oh, Trump supporters, liberals and progressives. Oh, I don't know. And like, make sure we have peace, guys. And like, let's be responsible. You don't have to say that. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't have to say that to Biden or his people because he's not inciting that kind of attitude amongst his people while Donald Trump is actively trying to sow seeds of, of unrest in the nation. And it's dangerous 
and it's entirely on his head top. Um, so I hope that people can see that very clearly. Yeah. And our narrative has been consistent. Like we just want all the votes to be counted. That's all. <laughs> I mean, we are over there <laughs> wiping a tear when he loses Florida. Like when Biden loses Florida, wiping a tear as Texas fades away, as they break our heart, wiping a tear when Ohio started out strong. Just count the votes. Just count them. We didn't ask for much, you know, but this dude, Trump is like, oh, can, you know, stop the vote in Michigan. First of all, makes no sense. You're losing. My friend. You're, you're, losing. you're behind right now. Uh, you should want him to count it up. <laughs> you should want him okay. to count, count more, actually. Count, right. count please, as many as possible, actually. Please count more. Please sweep USPS. There might be lost votes for me. Okay. But no, 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 no. That's not happening. It's, it's not happening. We are consistent. You know why? Because we're interested in our nation. You know, we're interested in our nation. Count the votes, all of them. The mail-in ballots, the dropped off at the little ballot box, okay, the early votes and the day of. Count them all and we'll be fine. Okay. No, that's super sad. I think that's so, oh, go ahead, Logan. Oh, I was just, I mean, the misinformation thing is just like come a full circle. It's just so interesting to me because it almost seems like Donald Trump knew that this is how he could win the first election. And it's the only way that he could continue to win another election. And it's what's funny, what I thought about 2.30 a.m. for Donald last night is that I don't even think he wanted to be president again for four more years. I just think this dude hates losing. Like, I think that's really what it is. Like, in, in 2017, when he went on that 60 Minutes or whatever it was, and he was like, yeah, this is a lot more work than I thought. And now we're just hearing leaks for the last four years about how this dude didn't want, like, doesn't do anything, and how they have to protect, like, the citizens from him constantly because of how little he knows about politics like this dude isn't fit to be president and we see that literally if you just go to donaldtrump.com and you read his non-existing policies like if he was really the best candidate for black american he would have a black agenda like his black agenda literally says text woke to four or five numbers. Like that's his black agenda. And you'll get a text back and they'll be like, I'm oh, glad you're here. Ice Cube, Ice Cube's working on it, bro. Ice Cube's working on it. Chill, chill. Okay. We talk to everybody. Oh, yeah, we talk yeah. to everybody, dog. And everybody. so like Trump is literally having to wield a re like a re-election campaign on just lying to people, just telling them stories. And it's what's funny, and I think we've seen it with uh Garrison touched on it a bit, but this like the Cuban American vote that we're seeing down south, or maybe that was Esther, a few people have, but like that that South Florida vote, where it's like, if you make me feel good, I don't really care if you have my best interest in mind as a president, but if I feel good, and the only way you can make someone feel good when you're a white supremacist talking to Cuban Americans is lying to them, is misinformation. It's That's the only way, you know, it's just like, it's just like anything. When you hate someone, the only way to get them to like interact with you is to be a liar and just to 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 wield misinformation back and forth. And and we're seeing it now. You know, people are calling voter fraud, and people are like, "Yeah, he has every right to call voter fraud." And I'm like, "Yes, if there's smoke, there might be fire, but there's no smoke. That's the problem here. You have no reason to say it. You're just saying it because you have a brainwashed base of people that are like, we believe everything you say." the news is crooked, like I'm gonna listen to Trump. And the news is like, 
okay, you may not like what we report, but we can fact check things. And they're like, facts can't be checked when Trump's, and it's just like, but it, it's the only way. It's the only way the guy could have got to the point that he did where he's now got like 6 million more votes than he got in 2016 because he's just like, I'll just lie. And you can put it right on the teleprompter and I'll read a lie. Like, I don't even care at this point just to convince people that I should win again because like, I guess he wants to. He doesn't care about America. He cares about Donald Trump. So some of what you said, Logan, piqued my interest. Huh? Get it? But piqued my interest from things that I've been thinking about earlier today. And it is this fact that Trump's percentage of the black vote increased two percentage points. So how, how and why do you guys think this happened? Because it seems like Trump was able to pull more of the minority vote away from Democrats. So let, let's talk about that because I've been really interested to hear how you guys responded to maybe hearing this news. We, for mm -hmm. black people, it's the black men. I, listen, I love black men, and it's not like it's it's That's not like it's know. the majority. <laughs> it's not like it's the majority, but there is a very yeah. persistent group of black men that keep showing themselves for who they are. They don't. There are because of this narrative that has been fed to so many black communities about communities about like, you know, you can make it like you like you can you can defeat this if you get enough money, if you reach this tax bracket. I feel like there are some black people, specifically black men, like we see it in the like in the rappers that we're seeing right now, Lil Wayne, Ice Cube. Kanye, right? 50 Cent, Diddy, all these people. Like, it's it's not about defeating white supremacy for them. It's about achieving a level at which they feel like they have the same amount of power that white people have. They don't want to eliminate the construct. They don't want that. They want to be at the top of the construct. And so for them, they see, oh, well, if I can, if I can get to this level that, you know, like that these, um, the level that is benefiting from these types of policies coming from Trump and Republicans, they see that as beneficial to them. Now it's delusional, like it's delusional to think like, oh, I'm closer to being a millionaire than I am to being homeless. Like, no, the, no, you are closer to being homeless than you are to actually benefiting from all of these economic um, policies coming from them. They're, they are not out there for you. But I just think that narrative that we've been fed so long and they, you know, they, they make it seem like it happens more often than it does black people making it because they hype those stories up so much. Mm -hmm. So you have this idea that like, oh, you know, like there, there is this clear pathway for me if I just work hard enough, but it's just not true for most people. And people have just been bamboozled by it. And I think black men are especially vulnerable to that because they are men. So they are not facing the same, um, like they are not facing the same levels of oppression from all the different angles that one, that black women are. So I think that they are more vulnerable to this idea of like, oh, I don't have to defeat this construct. In fact, I don't want to because I benefit from it in some ways. So I actually just want to um, get to a level where I am benefiting from it as much as white men are. Yeah. I don't know if you're about to jump in, Adrian. Feel free. Okay. You know, I there's this there's this like kind of like 
quip on Twitter that black men are the white people of black people. And, and it's, it. it's kind of funny and, <laughs> and, kind of, and kind of true in a, in a way in that whiteness is really just a proxy word for privilege. Yeah. It always has been. That's its historical context. White, to be white is to be the privileged caste or class in America. And black men amongst black people, especially cisgender straight, you know, black men, Christian black men are, you know, extremely privileged in, in that we have a lot of things working for us to be accepted. Okay. That being said, I think it's really important that we um, acknowledge that, that a lot of what we're fed as success is based on kind of Republican conservative narratives. And that's across the board. And so while we see black men thinking, believing that they can kind of ascend to the the heights of like, you know, Cube or Kanye or even a Trump, I think there are actually a number of people who are really having who have been infected by this idea that America is a meritocracy that if I just work hard enough, I can earn my way to being maybe a millionaire, billionaire, whatever it is. And there are so many layers that go into this. The last thing I want to say on this topic is that it's actually very interesting to me that I feel pretty confident that Joe Biden will win. I think the the pathway is pretty clear. And I am at the same time, I feel like there needs to be an autopsy done on the Democratic Party. Like, you know, after they lost, after the Republican Party lost in 2012, after the Democratic Party lost in 2004, they do these, you know, autopsies on the party and they try to come up with a strategy that makes sense for going forward and getting, you know, voters, you know, engaged in the future. And even after this win, I think we really desperately, like for those of us who are progressive and identify at least in part with the Democratic Party, the party desperately needs an autopsy because there are quite a number of things missing. There, There's a miss in the message yeah. here that's not connecting in a meaningful way. I think Black people have always been faced with a defensive vote. I mean, we've always known, those of us who are engaged and aware, always know that we have no home entirely in either party. Like, it's almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. And and there's a lesser damnation, right, in one or the other. So you make a decision. And I get that. But at some point, we have to get to the place where we're designing a, a platform and a party and a, and a political ideology that makes sense, <laughs> that actually makes sense for people of color. Like that really does. And I think that's kind of a a hard conversation. It's an internal kind of family kind of conversation, but it's a necessary one here because um, one of the reasons, and this is the last thing I'll say, one of the reasons why I think like five percenters in the nation of Islam are like so popular amongst black men. Growing up in Atlanta, I knew a lot of black men who found themselves aligned with this generally misogynist, honestly, kind of like, you know, economically conservative, uh, socially conservative kind of movement, but they identify with it is because there is this idea of autonomy that like, if you work hard enough and you are disciplined, 
you can be something, you can be somebody. And I think a lot of men in general uh, kind of find a bit of connection with that idea. And 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 this is not to negate or to or to like excuse voting for Donald Trump, which is irreprehensible, like by all means. But I do think that there needs to be a conversation had around the way in which we're talking about change, the way we're talking about autonomy amongst progressives, because I think the conversation can often and I maybe have even been a little guilty of this myself. I think the conversation can often lend itself towards like we are completely powerless unless, of course, the government, you know, changes and does something for us, which in many ways is true. But it doesn't connect as well for those who want to feel empowered. And I just think that's an important part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to to just kind of finish what what uh, Esther was saying, I think you know serves as to what we see. I feel like they knew they had to uh, uh, select Joe Biden because no one else, I think, in the party could have survived the onslaught of misinformation that was being thrown at at the presidency, particularly in the Democratic Party. Uh, and especially we see it with the way uh, Democrats were losing, at least in 2016, I, I should say, they lost a number of the battleground states that they had assumed would always be theirs. And now you had this party that is kind of searching for their identity and then they have to go up against this demagogue in Trump and they're like, okay, well, what what are we supposed to do here? Do we go in that progressive direction? Well, I don't know. Is that the safest thing to do? Because we know that the communist word is going to come up, but we know that we have to defeat Trump. Let's take a step back in some ways and really, you know, put in our support for someone like Biden per se, who we know that will probably gain some traction in some of these other states, like in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin that they're fearful that if somebody like Bernie got through, maybe he wouldn't be able to withstand some of that uh, propaganda being pushed at him. And I think what what we saw is that some of these votes are not guaranteed for the Democratic Party anymore. And they they thought that places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan would always be theirs because of, you know, Obama won it twice. Um, and then we, we noticed that in the last few years, like that hasn't been the case. And I think it's also similar to, um, minority votes. I think like what we're all saying here is definitely true, but I think underneath it all there, there is a longing for something to get done. And it's not always on the democratic party's like there are clearly efforts being done to stop bills from getting passed. And that's, you know, Mitch McConnell and the stuff that he does. Um, But I think that's the frustration that the Democratic Party was sensing with minority votes and younger votes. They sensed that, listen, these votes are not guaranteed just because we say the right things now. And I, I, it always stuck with me what Logan said in our, in our last episode where he, he talked about that if they really wanted to solidify votes, give voters something tangible to hold on to that they can say they actually did something that actually changed my life, like a tangible thing that's not so far-fetched of a, of a policy where we don't really feel it in, in our everyday lives. 
And I, I think that's part of the identity search that Democrats have to go go through. They need to recognize this like middle ground, you know, lukewarm uh, kind of stance you're wanting to be where we're like trying to be all encompassing of like moderates and progressives. I don't know if that is self-sustaining going forward because you're going to have the younger voters and the people of color, what they want to get through will always be a progressive idea in order for there to be some form of equity or a better future like climate change or on race. And so it's like, you you have to make a decision here because that trend, I, I think the Republicans realize it and we would be silly to think that they won't use it again four years later. It definitely, I hope that this is a wake up call for the Democratic Party because I think it, I, I think it's fair to say like, if they weren't running against Donald Trump, I don't think it would have won, right? Like this was like, this was all of this energy was galvanized about, it was against him. It was about defeating him. And I don't, I think you're right. Like it's, it wasn't necessarily like this strength from the party itself. It was like, first of all, a lot of grassroots organizations that are not even necessarily fond of the democratic party, but we're just like, we need to, we need to mobilize people to vote. Yeah that did a lot of work, like so much work going into just getting people registered and getting people out there, despite the fact that they themselves, the or these organizations themselves are not fond, not necessarily fond or excited about this candidate. So it's like, if, if we weren't running against somebody as hated as Trump, I don't know that we would, that we would, well, we haven't won yet, but I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that, um, it would be this, um, we'd be feeling this positive right now just because so much of it was about him. And yeah, they, I do hope that there is some sort of wake up call that comes out of this that A, first of all, you are completely, you are so dependent on black voters. They literally saved this election for you. Like we keep seeing in all of, in all of these states where we were waiting, like we were like, oh, Trump's in the lead, but all these ballots are coming in and we're waiting on ballots from all of these cities that are black. Like black voters in the Midwest saved this election, hands down. And I'm feeling immense proud, like immensely proud about that. But like, A, you're completely dependent on us and you have to start to do things like you have to start to do things because yeah it's not it's not guaranteed this wasn't an easy fight people worked hard to get this kind of this kind of turnout for you guys and it wasn't because of you at all it really wasn't about you guys so yeah 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 i, I just wanted to jump in real quick um on the on the um the black men voting for trump and you know maybe the uptick so um I actually was thinking about this a little bit before the pod because uh, there's this person. I won't say who it is, but he like it's a Trump supporter. He likes to troll me on Twitter. Shout out to him. Uh, if y'all want to check out the thread, it's in my mentions. But um, he replied to something that I said, and he said something like, um, you know, 17 percent of black men voted for Trump, which I feel like that's that's that sounds way too high. But, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's probably like, um, you know trump2020.com or something probably tweeted that out but uh higher than any republican in in decades but keep playing your division game so i guess i'm the one dividing not trump there's a lot of layers to that tweet anyway so i just replied to his tweet you know 253 and counting but after i did that um 
I started thinking like, well, first of all, I think 70% is a little bit too high of a number. Um, but I did start thinking like, man, that's, that's interesting that they're, cause I did see another tweet about an uptick among black voters, you know, gravitating towards Trump. And so, um, I don't know. I think it is something we do need to have a conversation about for sure, because um, someone as glaringly grotesque as Trump, um, it should be pretty obvious as a black man, you know, the choice that you should be making. I mean, but it's also a reminder that, you know, the black vote's not a monolith. And then one of the other things I thought about is a lot of times we just use the category black. We don't get into the diaspora are these, you know, African immigrants, are these, you know, Caribbean immigrants, uh, first or second generation, whatever the case may be, because, or are we talking about African Americans? I'd love to see the African American number on that. It probably is less than 1%, you know, if I had to guess. So, I mean, there, there's just a lot to it, similar to how Esther was talking about the fact that, you know, folks like to use this category Latinos and they really don't have any idea what they're talking about is such a eclectic, diverse group of people from a, a bunch of different backgrounds and, and, um, you know, perspectives. So, so I, I know, I think it's something that we do need to, to think about. And it does make you wonder, like I've said, I feel like privately to, to you all before I felt like if the Republicans ever got out of their way, meaning got out of the way of their connection to bigotry and racism, they would try to run somebody like Tim Scott. And I feel like if they ran Tim Scott, he'd be low key unbeatable. Um, unless the Democrats started making some real in inroads in the South, because you have a, you know, you have a Senator with Southern ties who's, who's black, you know, who's Republican, you know, relatively well-spoken um, that could be dangerous. And, you know, on top of that, you run him with someone who's Hispanic, then I mean, so I actually thought that that's the direction that Republicans were going to try to start going after 2012, when for like that three, four month period, they were actually having legitimate talks with Obama about immigration because they realized that like, whoa, the future of the party, we're going to have to be a little bit more inclusive. And they actually pulled the exact opposite lever and said, no, we could just get super racist and it worked for them. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, skirt. <laughs> but um I think that they're probably going to have to have another chance now to figure out, all right, well, we sort of played that hand for four years, but it backfired on us. So where do we go next? And I think that you might see them try to move a little bit more towards moderation, probably not for the next two years, because Moscow Mitch will likely continue to be the Senate majority leader. Uh, but perhaps in 2022, depending on what the, the, uh, map looks like the Dems may get the Senate then. And then at that point, you might start to see them shift. But um, yeah, I think that um, there, there's sort of a lot that we need to sort of think about and consider. And to all of your points, Democrats, you know, I really feel like this this is really a referendum on the future of, of what the future of the Democratic Party needs to be if they're going to continue to be viable. Because there are these ideas that there's no life after Trump for Republicans. I think that's kind of overstated. Um, I feel like people have short memories and there are a lot of lifelong Republicans that want any kind of excuse to reconnect to the party. You know, the Lincoln Project is a really 
growing movement of, you know, displaced Republican voters and, and leaders, and they have some prominent voices. And if they start to mobilize that into a political machine, you could start to see the rise again of a moderate Republican voice, which is now taking up more space with independents. And so Democrats have to really decide, are we going to go all in and really build this coalition with minorities in a real way by empowering them? Or are we going to keep half-stepping and then, you know, the, the map could change and then they could be in trouble? No, that's good. Um, I think like on that conversation of race uh, from the Democratic perspective, I think it's really important two things that you can do as Democrats from like a white Democrat perspective or a liberal. First of all, get out of our own way. Like if we're really going to run a whole primary based on it being the most diverse and uh, primary group we've ever seen, you can't end up with the two 70 plus year old white dudes. Like that's just not progress. That's just not a group that's going to progress for the black community or people of color in our our country like it's just not going to happen um bernie and bernie and joe are well liked and well respected in a lot of ways but you're going to struggle to connect with groups of people when you're running the people that have made these people's lives difficult for a really really long time and i think i think it's just telling of kind of where we're still at we're like we got you know we got we had Castro and Warren, even like young Pete there and uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Like these are, this is a diverse group. And then it's like, well, who do we end up with? It's Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And this is policy aside. I'm just looking at the perspective of who people are going to trust. Why do people trust Donald Trump? Because he's a white old racist guy. Like why are people scared of, you know, Joe and Bernie? Well, because they're old white guys. And uh, I think the point number two is if we're really going to look at what the future of Democrats hold, I think conservatives tell us who are the most conservative, or I mean, who are the most popular Democrat um, uh, Congress people in the United States right now? They're not only most popular uh, on the Democratic side, but they're most popular on the conservative Republican side. And that's the squad. That's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, uh, Ayanna Presley, and Rashid Tlaib. I can never pronounce her last name properly. But those are the people. When Republicans have brand new people that come into the House and they say like, hate these people immediately. That's like a, a flag to say like, Democrats get behind these people because if, if the Republicans and ultra conservative media are saying to hate this group, they're gonna, they're literally telling you, we see this group as too powerful. We see this group as too important. They did it to Hillary. That's why Hillary had so much hate by the time she finally ran for president because the conservatives have been terrorizing her life since Bill Clinton was president in the nineties. And it just continued to carry on. I think. We have to get out of our own way at some point and stop trying to push this this old white demographic on people and say like, look, if we're we're not talking about let's speak for these people, we're saying like let's pass the mic to this younger and um, more diverse generation and say like this is your time to lead us because we need you to. Um, and you know we got to put egos aside if we're going to start to make those kind of like moves to bettering the Democratic Party that's going to benefit the BIPOC for sure. Jumping off of what you guys said, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Um, I, I remember when 2016 happened, you know, a lot of us, or when, or, or when the, the, the Tiki Torch parade happened 
a couple of years ago, you know, you would always get someone, I would say a prominent anti-racist politician would come on TV and say, you know, this is not us. This is not who we are. But it made me think about waking up, seeing how many people that did vote for Trump, who is a racist, it made me think, well, maybe this is who we are. Maybe this is us. This is America. And um, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Imani, what, what do you think? Do you think the amount of people that voted for Trump, what do you think that communicates for what kind of country we're living in right now? Are we in denial or do we, or, or, or are we facing the truth right now? Well, hey guys, I haven't been here in a while and I came super late. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that we've always known since the beginning of time, and this is where the 1619 Project has like caused an uproar because it, you know, basically the premise was is that this country was built inherently in the fabric, uh, in, in the knit of the nation, was built um, to be anti-Black. And no matter what you do, um, whether you try to be progressive, you know, try to give Black people extra rights, right, that you can't run away from the, uh, the blood of the nation, which is in a sense, you know, uh, uh, anti-Black racism. So um, if you go off of that theory, I would say that unless you literally abolish, and that's what people are talking about, like abolishing police and stuff like that and start over, that would be one perspective where, you know, no matter how progressive we think we're getting, you know, black people will never really uh, have a leg up because this country is inherently um, positioned to, um, to, you know, push us down, hold us back, if you will, and keep a chain on our leg um, just a little bit um, so that we can't get ahead. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is, um, is more of a positive one, I guess I would say. And I would just say that like with the civil rights movement and with Black Lives Matter and all these other immigrant rights movements and stuff like that, that we can have a more positive attitude and change the nation. Um, with Trump, I was a little more skeptical, but then again, I kept thinking, well, maybe it's one of those moments where it exposes us a little bit more because we got comfortable. And now that we're exposed to the disease, we can start carving out more of it and more of it and more of it. So. Um, I'm still, the jury's still out on that one for like a complete definitive answer for that for me personally, but I definitely understand the perspective that's out there that this country is far too far gone. We need to go to Ghana. We need to go to Liberia, start all over again, you know, but then of, of course there is a, a more positive, um, outlook, like a civil rights, you know, a movement outlook where you can. You can um, work within the system, make it better, and then Black people here can prosper and we don't have to deal with racism anymore. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think to Imani's point, um, you can't fix what's not exposed and what's not known. And I think we see a totally new part of America that maybe, I mean, I've talked about this multiple times, but like, becoming an adult in the era of Barack Obama being the president was a privilege and like had kind of, you know, being from like even an immigrant family where we're not as in touch with like the deep roots of, of what um, American society has looked like for generations on generations. Obviously I learned, but you know, that was something that I learned. Right. And so like 
growing in that way, I think that we're seeing now we've been kind of blasted just with bombarded with like all this information, this new, um, what is really an old America, but just panning out in what we consider to be like our modern world, right? And I think that now that we've seen it a little more clearly, we'll be able to address some of those issues. I think what we're really seeing, honestly, though, from the election results is that people care about themselves. People are selfish. And what do I mean by that? I think that people are thinking economy when they're voting for Trump. I've heard a lot of people say, I mean, I know he's like a little bit racist, but like he is like his economy is pretty good. Or, you know, and they they center on those issues that benefit them. Oh, he's he's trying to get, you know, America to be the center of attention again, which obviously not in very good ways because we're like laughing side of the world right now. But, um, you know, that they're very self-interested. They're very interested in what benefits them. And honestly, I think that Democrats, I think we tend to have a more community based message. But I think we have to think about how are we going to incorporate those those points into our arguments, into our presentation. How are we going to address those people? Because they're not going to change. They're still going to be wondering about their pockets. They're still going to be talking about their small business. They're still going to be talking about finance. They're still going to be caring about their own, you know, place in the structure and how they can preserve that. So how do we tackle that issue effectively while maintaining our integrity? I think that's going to be the question that we have to come up with a solution for, for the next four years. Yeah, I, I feel like the answer to the question of like whether this is America and it always has been, I honestly just think it's like, well, how are you defining America? Like, I, I feel like white America has made their stance on this pretty clear. Like, I think like, this is white America. This is, this is them. And we are seeing that, right? Like if considering everything that Trump has done, everything that he said, all the ways that he has failed in this year alone, and he could still get this much of the vote and still have us like on the edge of our seats, right? Like concerned about what's going to happen and waiting this long for the results. I think white America has been pretty clear. And I, and I think they've, and I, I think that I think the Obama era was like a fluke. I think we just got yeah. very, very hopeful from that one era of time. But a lot of a lot of Obama's win. I mean, yes, it was voter turnout and, you know, like getting, you know, getting lots of young people out, getting lots of people of color out. But it was also like he made white America very comfortable and he spent years ahead of his ahead of his election trying to do that. Like when you read the things that he wrote in his autobiography and in his books, it is very much about trying to be like, no, I don't believe that, you know, I, I don't believe that we are that different. I don't believe that um, the soul of America is bad. I don't like he, his, a lot of his rhetoric was about saying like, he believes in the soul of America and to white people, that's them. Like we are like white people are the soul of America when you say that. And so I think like, because he was able to do that and because he was able to sort of speak into like this, you know, this patriotism and this belief in America that got enough white voters out there to support him. And then we saw that and we were like, yo, they've changed, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a new era. White people supported this black president and like everything is different. But 
it wasn't it, it it was a fluke it was that he was he was a black person that was that was able to a i mean he he was able to i think console them and make them feel as though like we are not that bad right that is that is what really helped him and that's not a like that is not a transformation that's not an internal transformation of you on your stances or your beliefs about people or race that's not the same thing that's this person makes me feel better that's not confronting the truth so we've never done that they white the white community has never done that and i think like no i think this is them i think this has been them and i think like they i don't know i don't know how we'll see that change i mean those those um Statistics about like the percentage of young white voters who voted for Trump, they was like oh, like just a little over fifty percent. I think are very telling, like extremely telling. Um, this is definitely them. But at the same time, if you're talking about like who is America, I mean like America is changing like drastically and fast. Like, and we're seeing it. And I mean like I know in some of these places we were disappointed, like Texas. Like some people were like, oh maybe we'll get it this year. We didn't. But like it is very apparent that like it's coming like America's face it's it's culture everything about it is changing and shifting very quickly it's just a matter of like how vigilant are we going to be to make sure that our voice is always louder like that's just it and the and white people and republicans are going to try very hard just as they have been to not let that be the case no matter how the country changes and shifts yeah, I, I really think it's important for us also to play the game the proper way. I mean, I think what you're saying, Esther, is, is so key that the demographics in this country are changing at a rate that are just unimaginable. And, you know, Republicans, conservatives, white America, let's be very explicit, knows that their ideas, their, you know, societal standards or what have you no longer have the salience in the public square that they once had. They are losing popularity in a rapid way. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that because they know that they are entrenching their ideologies and their ways into parts of the government that are much more difficult to change, that yeah. don't change with a couple of elections here and there that aren't volatile every four years. They're entrenching them in the judiciary. They're entrenching them clearly into the Supreme Court. And so... I think we're going to have to start playing that game. I mean, I think, you know, Democrats are running on. It's ironic that liberals have become the kind of like moral voice for more, more or less like in this country of like playing by the rules and being all kind and nice and all that type of stuff. But if the rules are changing, progressives are going to have to start changing their approach with that. And that means really centering not so much on like the power of our voice or representation yeah. and really looking to legislate and to entrench those ideologies that benefit the masses, that make sure that black and brown bodies are protected the way that conservatives are making sure that white privilege is protected. Yeah. And to, to what you're saying, Garrison, I think we see it with where we saw a lot of energy coming from. It was from people of color and young people. Like when you, they, they, you know, when Esther showed that poll of like Gen Z voters, listen, I think it was like black people under 25 voted for Joe Biden in like the 90 percentage points. Like it, that is a crazy number. When you, you, you look at, at immigrants, like what we're seeing in Arizona, that demographic is changing 
fast. And that's how they were able to switch things in 2018. And so when I when when you talk about the, the Democratic Party, you say, who where are you getting the most charisma from? Where are you getting the most excitement, the most energy from? When I when we, you know, we talked about how such a, a great move it was for AOC when she went on Twitch and played Among Us. Literally, this is her first stream, and she was breaking Twitch records, like hitting 550,000 views. Like the top streamers in the game don't even get that, bro. But what she realized is she is in tune with where the future of the Democratic Party is, and she knows how to get to them and encourage them to vote. Every In between the games, that's what she's saying. She's saying, hey, y'all, put it in the chat. Let me know when you guys are going to vote. How are you going to vote? Like, you were talking about like an actual campaign rally. Like putting two chains up there is not going to do the same thing as what AOC did in just a matter of an hour of playing Among Us. Like you, you really have to strategize better with how to get in touch with the people who are literally carrying, carrying your party right now. Like there, there is a reason why so many black people loved Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't. It wasn't that that you know she she was ever president before. She's ever a vice president, but she had plans. <laughs> she had plans that black people could say, okay, she knows what she's talking about. She has an ability to break down economically how this will help people of color in a way that not everybody else on that Democratic primary platform was able to do. And I think that you like the the party has to take a real look. Like yo. Biden, you've got four years here. Kamala, you, you've got four years here, maybe more. You all have to say, okay, who just won us this election? It, it wasn't these Republican white voters who you thought would switch over because it didn't really work like that in Texas. It didn't work in the way you thought it would in Florida. And so you have to say, how did we win? Where did so many of these votes come from? And how can we mobilize that even more? And that I, I think has to be the question that they ask. And I think someone like AUC, like it, it is the perfect example of how she, she was able to do so much with so little. It was authentic. She didn't come across as like patronizing. It wasn't, it wasn't cringe. It wasn't corny. And I'm like, come on, man. Like y'all, y'all have to take a real look in the mirror, man. Cause right. uh, I was gonna say, Adrian, like who carried today for us was probably black women. Yes. Um, black men didn't come out as much. They, you know, as Trump. And speaking of black women, I don't know if you guys, because I was uh, away, but Cori Bush, um, she won her seat, um, a House of Representatives seat in um, the congressional district where Ferguson is, and she's a Black Lives Matter activist. And she unseated a, a, a black, um, a black uh, representative who basically him and his family held the seat for like 50 years. Wow. And so it's really like, and she's a part of the squad. If you guys ever seen um, knock down the house, she was the black woman that was in Ferguson or I just said Ferguson and she ran again and won. So I was super proud of her. And it just kind of reminded me as black women, like we've been doing a lot for this party. And it is nice to see Kamala there representing us. Even, you know, I was talking to my friend who worked um, for John Lewis this past week. And I was asking her, I was like, you know, what do you think about Kam 
Kamala and she didn't like her. And I was just, we were going back and forth of it for it. But at the end of the day, I had to think about it. And I'm like, you know, just as a black woman in general, what we're doing in politics right now is super amazing. Yeah. Um, seeing Cori Bush go to um, the House of Representatives, unseating two, even though they were black men, but they were establishment politicians. I think all of us realize that black women are the center of this Democratic Party, and we need to get behind them quickly and fast because, you know, I think personally, I think that we we have the most influence on our black men, our children. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's all I have to say. I have to just put a plug in for black women at all times every day. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a statistical fact, like black women, when they vote, they bring their whole thing, like they yeah. bring people with them. Like they don't go alone. They make it like a community thing. They they are the galvanizing um, people in the black community for, for vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've not seen one of my black mom friends that have not taken their children or taking a picture of their kids with their vote, I vote stickers, taking them to the polls. Like my two-year-old voted for the first time today, joking, you know, every single one, every single, we're, we're going hard in the paint. We're going hard. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Shout out to black women. Shout out to future president of the United States, Noah Nixon. She's Let's been go. on it with her classmates going super hard. Going super hard for Biden and Kamala. You can't tell her nothing. And I'm and it's all and I love to see it. I've said, well, that's how she feels. I honestly we hadn't we didn't even have a lot of conversations with Noah about Trump. She just watches TV and has a brain. And so she knew that he needed to get up out of here. But uh <laughs> but the other thing I was gonna say real quick, thinking about it from the black perspective, I was actually watching um this video the other day from the contemporary black prophet, uh, Umar Johnson. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> He's not a prophet, but he'd be, he'd be wild. And I, I disagree with a lot of what he has to say, but every once in a while, you know, you know, broken, broken clock twice a day theory, but um, he was actually saying, and I forget who he was talking to. He was some interview of his, and he was actually talking about how, um, wait a minute. They, Oh no, sorry. I thought they just gave uh, Biden another state. I was about to trip, but um, he was talking about how um, you know, black people in particular have to sort of shift our focus away from just looking at electing a political, you know, candidate as the end all be all or as the solution for all of our problems, that kind of a thing. And, um, and, I thought about it and it was like, I think he, I kind of felt like he overblew how true that is of all black people. Cause I think that most black people understand that, but I would say that one of the things that I, I want to push back on, particularly among black celebrity culture. Um, and I, and I think LeBron James and a few others are an exception to what I'm going to say. There are a lot of black celebrities who, and it's particularly around like election time, where they try to assert some sort of political leverage, either in alignment with the political candidate or just into the political discussion and act as if like that's their, you know, call to duty. Like your know, Ice Cube, nobody asked you for your contract for Black. Nobody asked you to write that, bro. 
and and he rolled out a contract for Black America and didn't have a section for Black women, and then was going on shows with Black women talking about, oh well, I'll let y'all write a section. It's like, bro, why are we writing any? Why are you writing anything? Well, why are you writing a section on what you wrote? Nobody asked you to write it. Like, why why are you here, bro? And so I just feel like a lot of these celebs, there are black people, to to y'all's point, there are black people, black women in particular, who are on the front lines, putting in the real work, who are either running for political office, working in nonprofits, you know, running and starting nonprofits. And what they need from some of those celebrities is just monetary support. They don't need you to be like the face of everything. They don't need you to act like you know everything that you're talking about. You know, you you have all the answers or whatever the case may be. And we don't need you to, you know, show up at Trump Tower and have some empty meeting that we don't hear anything about after you have it. After the photo op, nothing comes of it. Like, you know, we, we need to strategize around, you know, okay, how can I invest this money that I've made into the community? And there's multiple different ways you can do that. LeBron James didn't talk to, uh, you know, Obama or Biden about starting his school. He just got people together who knew how to put schools together and invested in it. And now kids are getting an education and their parents are getting free education to further their studies and all that different type of stuff. Just and, and nobody knew about that until he launched it. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like some huge campaign around, hey, you know, of course, he's trying to get people out to vote as well, but we need to be doing multiple things. It can't just be like, all right, we got out the vote for Biden and, you know, now we just kind of go by the wayside and then just like wait for them to do something. And actually, Obama, he was on the shop on HBO. I encourage you all to watch that the other day. He was talking about how when he got elected in 08, how, you know, everybody, you know, and he was kind of being funny about it, but he was like, you know, everybody and their mama and them were all excited and was like, all right, yeah, you got in. And then it was like, all right, bro, do your thing. Like, we'll, we'll see you back in 2012 or we'll check in with you in 2012. You know what I'm saying? And, he, and you know, he was like, oh, hold on, hold on, wait, you know. So I, I feel like we have to sustain this energy um, and we have to invest in the people that are really doing the work and then figure out for ourselves, how can we connect with and empower those who are doing the work um, so that we can attack these issues that we're facing in our community from multiple different angles? Because of course, are we gonna wanna hold Biden and Harris accountable um, and and try to get them to work towards a a broad government solution for some of these issues? Absolutely. but to expect them to fix all of it, particularly with how divided our government will continue to be, it's just unrealistic. And so we shouldn't even play that game mentally. Uh, we have to continue to do the work. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, Mike. I, I do wanna say super quick, especially when I saw this platinum plan, um, with Ice Cube, when Imani and I were talking about it, you know, we were thinking, why don't more of these celebrities use their platform to just plug in the prominent black legislators, educators, people that are 
experts at this stuff and say, hey, I actually am interested in putting something together for our community, but I want you to lead this. I want you to put this together. I want to work with you and I want you to take charge. And I think a lot of just getting people engaged politically when some of these celebrities do things like this, it's very performative. A lot of it is just for clout and clout chasing. And, and that can be very frustrating because Mike, you make such a great point. We, we get these people into office. We say, all right, I'm done, I'm gone. And then we get upset when not enough happens. But the thing is, God's willing when Biden becomes the next president, we got to keep the pressure. Like if he wins, this is just step one complete. There are many more steps that follow. We got to keep the pressure on him. And we have to lobby him to make the change that, that we want to see. So if you're a celebrity, um, just just like tell us where the polls are, if that's all you need and want to do. Your money. And give us your money. <laughs> and then that's, that's really it. What we, need. we don't we don't need to hear about your plans, platinum, gold, bronze, aluminum. Don't don't need any of those plans. <laughs> the, the the number one plan we need from celebrities is how they're gonna help us flip the Senate in two years. That that's the number one plan. Because at this point. It, you know, I was sharing this with Simone earlier and I kind of I, I know we're kind of wrapping up here. I don't I hate to, to go to this dark place, but why not? Um, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like we definitely won the White House. And what I mean by we, I mean democracy. I mean the people. I mean, you know, this growing number of individuals who want to have a life. Right. Like 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 Biden's going to win. And that's great. And I'm, I'm at least I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure of that. This might be a freezing cold take in a, in a couple of days, but I'm pretty sure he's going to win. Um, but it's very unlikely that we flip the Senate. I know that like Lauren Underwood lost her congressional seat in Illinois. There were several other that's a black woman. There are several other seats that we lost Doug Jones in Alabama. That's a Senate seat. The likelihood of flipping the Senate is is waning. And that's unfortunate because at the end of the day, you know, Biden, the president can't do it all. They need congressional support. And while we have the House, um, we don't have the Senate and that that they, they have to work together. So, you know, that Mitch is about to block mad stuff. He's going to play the obstructionist game. They're going to make sure it never even comes to the floor like that part of the process is still hobbling it's still handicapped in many ways th this is of course a census year which means that states are redistricting and we did not take back state legislatures in key states so they're going to continue to gerrymander they're going to continue to to write up districts that allow them to win no matter what without black and brown people ever having to cast a single ballot for them like and, and so that stuff that's the reality that we live in and it's kind of depressing and, and, and saddening, but that means that we can't afford to like breathe. We can breathe like one side. We get like one sigh of relief, but we have to get back at it. We have to get back out there and make sure we're not only giving money, but our time canvassing, phone banking, doing everything we can to get progressive people, uh, those who are interested in meaningful change, into positions of power on both the state level 
and of course in congressional like on the national level that is so important otherwise we've gotten the lugubrious you know like cheeto in chief out of here we got the the tweeter in chief out of here but have we actually uh set ourselves up to make lasting uh change um and that's kind of where i am right now with everything being said we still have so much work to do mm -hmm. and that work is gonna fall as it always does but like disproportionately on us people of color people in the lgbtq community the disabled community women because people who didn't have as much skin in the game who voted for biden mm -hmm. are gonna dip out after this yeah so, so before we end i just want to give some good news because garrison uh, likes things to go dark pretty often um just kidding just kidding but here are <laughs> <laughs> but here is a bit of good news. I do want to say that happened from our votes, from the hard work we've all been doing. Marie Turner, she is a 27-year-old black, queer, progressive newcomer. She won the election for State House in Oklahoma's 88th district. Marie is both the first non-binary binary, excuse me, legislator ever and the first Muslim legislator in Oklahoma State. Also, Sarah McBride, she's a Democratic activist that will become the nation's first person who publicly identifies as transgender to serve as a state senator after winning Tuesday's election in Delaware. And then lastly, Richie Torres and Mundare Jones uh, have both made history for the first openly gay black men to be elected to Congress. So I would say, that's pretty good. And I feel very proud and very excited that we have actually been able to get more people that matter in our country to be in places of power to represent more of who we are. And there was a ton of referendums too that passed on like drugs, marijuana. Mm -hmm. There was that one in Oregon where they decriminalized possession of any drug at all. Mm -hmm like a ton of wins on all these different ballots. Ton of wins. So what I can do is I can um, give everyone this link. I'll just put it in the comment section so you guys can see what other good news went down for um, for the election. While, while you do that, Jordan, mm -hmm. I just want to say real quick, and I, I want to do a quick shout out to Gary Peters, who just held his seat in, in Michigan. Um, and I mean, you know, he, he's just a white dude. Shout out to Logan. But the thing I think is cool about Gary Peters is um, he um, he actually is the first ever like sitting congressperson, I believe, to publicly talk about his family's experience with having to get an abortion. He actually talks about the fact that while he was with his ex-wife, um, they were... Um, she was at a point in her pregnancy where, you know, the, her life and the life of the child were threatened. And so they had to make a tough decision around that. And so we spoke openly about the really difficult decision that they had to make and, and also talked about reproductive rights, which, as you can imagine, is it's a 
it's a risky thing to do, particularly for him who was in a very vulnerable position in Michigan to talk about something like reproductive rights when he really didn't have to. Uh, and, and it really, I think, made uh, his race even a little bit tighter than it, than it could, you know, necessarily needed to be. But he was able to hold on to it. And so I applauded him for his transparency and for at a critical moment. And one of the reasons why he did that was due to the um, debate around the, the the recently confirmed Supreme Court justice and the potential attack on reproductive rights. And so a shout out to him. And, um, you know, we, we have we probably won't get the Senate yet, but holding on to that seat is going to be, I think, key, hopefully in 2022, as we look back. Holding on to that ground is an important part in achieving ground in the future. So, yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, guys, thank you for coming on to the show. Um, this is it feels kind of weird because you know we just don't know how things are gonna be next this time next Wednesday. So I guess good luck. Um take care. Take a break, put your phone down. But again, thank you so much for joining us for Affirmative Interaction. And this is our 29th episode. The next episode is going to be our 30th episode, which is kind of a big deal. Someone should get me a present. But besides that, we hope you all enjoy the rest of the election, how possible that may be. And we hope to see you next week with some good news. Please take care. We'll see you next time. Peace.